You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Welcome to episode 84 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on contraception and global reproductive health. I'm Marie Haas, and with me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and guest panelist Heather Bertman. Hello, Victoria and Heather. Hi. Hi. So let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Uh, Victoria, would you go first? Sure. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. If you have listened to this show before, you probably know a lot about me, so I'll keep this brief. I am the audience development manager for Public Radio International in Minneapolis, and I live in Minnesota with my husband Michael of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our two cats, neither of whom happen to be recording with me today, so hopefully uh, we will be cat noise free. (laughs) Thanks, Victoria. Heather, how about you? Hi everyone, I'm Heather Bertman, and I am a first-year Master of Arts and Religion student at Yale Divinity School. I'm from Wisconsin originally, and I live in New Haven now and love it. Um, And I'm right now doing a hospital chaplaincy internship, and I love that too. And that's an intense program, I know. So I'm very glad you decided to join us even at this (laughs) intense time. Thank you. And um, I'm Marie Haas, a regular panelist on the show. I'm also currently a student at Yale Divinity School. I'm in the MDiv program, Masters of Divinity. Um, I'm focusing on women's gender and sexuality studies. Uh, So I also live in New Haven uh, with my spouse, Jonathan. And I also have two cats who hopefully will not be making cat noises either (laughs) as we record. Um, so before we begin, let me give a little background on where this episode is coming from. So this is, this is growing out of a weekend seminar that Heather and I participated in on leadership and issues of faith and global health. It was led by Dr. Pauline Muchina at Yale Divinity School on last November 10th and 11th. Um, Dr. Muchina is the director of the United Methodist Church program Healthy Families, Healthy Planet, and she previously worked as an advisor to UNAIDS. A central point of the seminar was that access to reproductive health care and education for women around the world is a human right that both saves and improves lives and that religious communities really should be involved in making that access a reality rather than, as is sometimes the case, impeding it. Uh, And in this course, we heard of these appalling and preventable statistics, for example, that 222 million women worldwide are without access to contraceptives. Um, And that partly due to this, 835 women die each day from pregnancy complications. The vast majority of these women in developing countries, and there's a stark difference in maternal mortality between Um, the developing world and the developed world between rural and urban environments as well. It's something like 12 out of 1,000 births for urban or developed environments versus 239 out of 1,000 births in uh, rural or um, developing environments. So that's why this episode is about both contraception and global reproductive health generally because the two are so connected. And I should also say that this is just a very broad and introductory kind of episode. I hope we might have sort of more focused ones sometime in the future on sort of related topics or subtopics. Um, And one possible reason uh, and a reason for having this episode uh, is that the church sometimes can be silent about contraception and global reproductive health. Um, We discussed this in in the seminar, the reason being that there could be a great reluctance in churches to talk about sex at all, coupled with this tendency to treat contraceptives as 
sinful sometimes, or at least to just not talk about it. Um, and this tendency, of course, differs from denomination to denomination and church to church, and we've all had different experiences with this in our past and in, in, in various religious communities. Um, so as always, this episode has three sections, the knowing section where we talk about our experience on the topic, the reading section where we discuss the material that we've read for the episode and linked to in the show notes, and the passing on section where we'll provide listeners with our recommendations. Um, so let's start uh, the knowing section with our experiences, what we've, uh, what we've experienced in our religious communities when it comes to talking about reproductive health. Um, so I can go first. Uh, for, for my part, growing up, my experience in religious communities is that they were pretty silent when it came to reproductive health. And I grew up, I think I probably mentioned on the show before, on the mission field in Bolivia with my family being a part of a fairly conservative evangelical mission. And at our church in Bolivia, I don't really remember hearing anything Beyond, of course, you know, the mandate to not have sex outside of marriage uh, at the churches that my family visited while traveling around the United States to visit our supporters. I remember um, going to lots of young adult uh, Sunday school classes where we learned the difference between Eros and Agape. And of course, it goes without saying that Eros was always bad. Uh, but there wasn't really anything there that I heard about reproductive health or contraception either. And at my school in Bolivia, which was a Christian English-speaking school originally established for missionary kids, I really didn't hear much either. I think I think there was one time a poster on the wall that said, abstinence, it works every time, but that was it. Um, I've learned, heard from my younger siblings that there was a sex ed class established there later that they went through one, but there wasn't one when I was there. So growing up from my religious environment in general, I kind of received the vague impression that hormonal contraceptives were equivalent to abortion and that contraceptives in general were something bad and that you would only need them if you were sinning anyway. So even much, much, much later, after going through years of graduate school, I still felt a kind of initial like twinge of shame when I was first prescribed hormonal contraceptives. Um, I've used them a number of years now, initially to prevent the growth of uterine polyps, um, and then both for that and for the prevention of pregnancy. Um, and I think the slight, the, you know, the cause of that slight sense of shame that I felt is also the cause behind. Um, the kinds of religious communities that I grew up in, not speaking much about contraception. There's this silence when it comes to talking about sex-related issues at all, and there's this conflation of contraception and abortion, and there's a stigma, especially for women, when it comes to sexual activity. Um, so that's a little bit of my experience. Uh, what were your, you guys' experiences growing up? I don't know, Victoria, maybe you could go. Sure. Um I also did not hear much about reproductive health or contraception from my church growing up. Um, I, I got a pretty solid um, mid to late 90s abstinence only education um, religiously. My mother did teach me about hormonal birth control and other forms of birth control, um, primarily because I was a, uh, a change of life baby, as they say. Um, my mother had me when she was about 40 years old, and so because hormones were a part of her life, because she was, um, she gave birth shortly before going through menopause, um, that was something that was just around, and she informed me about it. Um, later in life, I was prescribed birth, uh, hormonal birth control before becoming sexually active um, for similar reasons as the ones you mentioned, um, Marie. I had really, really painful um, menstrual cycles and um, doctors suspected that I might have um, PCOS, polycystic mm. ovarian syndrome. Um, so in, in order to um, stem that pain and get closer to a diagnosis, I was put on the pill in college, 
Um, that was also around the time that the Gardasil vaccination, um, uh, the cervical cancer vaccine was made available. And I remember there being quite a lot of conversation. Um, this was when I was still a uh, Baptist before I became Presbyterian. Quite a lot of conversation in my Baptist student union about this vaccine and how awful it was and how it was clearly giving people license for premarital sex and how terrible. Um, and, and so a, a lot of people that I was friends with at the time were against this. Um, I, at the behest of my mother, signed up to get it immediately. And I said, you know, what if people find out? What are they going to say about me getting this vaccine? And she said, you know, if your friends don't want you to take care of your body, then they're probably not your friends and you should not listen to their opinions. So um, my mother was sort of a, a voice against that kind of um, shame and, uh, and, and lack of information that you're talking about. Those were some of my earlier um, experiences. And then later, once I started uh, teaching at the Christian college here in Minnesota that I taught at before my current job, um, one of the classes that I taught was the interdisciplinary seminar in human sexuality. So teaching that class at a Christian college was a wonderful, terrible, frustrating, amazing experience. Um, and I'll, I'll probably talk uh, a little bit more about that experience as the episode progresses. But uh, having to be in a place where I wanted to speak against those myths and, uh, and not participate in the kind of culture of shame around things like uh, contraception or, um, or sex within the confines of marriage, um, those kinds of things, that was really, um, really important to me to, to, to be a positive, uh, contributor to that conversation. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what a great, uh, statement from your mother that, you know, they're not really your friends if they don't want you to take care of your body. Wow. Um, Heather, what about you? Yeah. So I relate to a lot of what you guys both said about the silence. I grew up um, kind of in a conservative church, mostly Baptist, non-denominational when, when we were attending church, which, which we weren't always. At home, it was a bit more non-traditional. So I did grow up knowing about hormonal birth control, though I certainly didn't have any idea about the options that I know about now and I'm very glad to know about now. Um I think I kind of had the idea that everyone was probably taking contraceptives at church and most people did so guiltily. And that's something I have always been interested in, that it's something that is okay to do potentially if you don't talk about it and if no one knows about it. So there still is so much shame attached even when everyone is doing it. Hmm. Yeah. And, um, that, that sense of silence and shame is something I, uh, and how to combat that is something I'm sure we'll be talking about a little more in this episode too. Um, so thank you both for sharing that your, those experiences of yours. Um, and before we move on to our reading section, I thought it might be good to give just a brief description of the different kinds of contraception for any listeners that it might be helpful for, because I know like that would have been useful to me some years ago, just to have some really basic knowledge. Um, Victoria, I think you prepared something on that. Yes, I did. Um, I want to note at the front that, first of all, since we have not given this disclaimer yet, um, I, I don't expect a lot of people listen to our show with children. Just in case you do, uh, this might be a great time to put on headphones uh, or uh, send any pairs of little ears out of the room. Uh, this is not going to be a graphic description, but it is going to be a medically accurate uh, description, including specific biological and sexual terms. Uh, so keep that in mind. Uh, all the information I'm going to give is taken primarily from a book called Birth Control for Christians by Janelle Williams Paris, uh, which I wholeheartedly recommend. Uh, it's well-researched. It prioritizes ethical questions tied to a Christian perspective. It also debunks some commonly held myths about uh, sexual health 
and, um, and sexual intercourse. It prioritizes strong communication between spouses. Each chapter um, lists a different type of birth control and each chapter concludes with a set of questions that if you are considering that type of birth control, you and your spouse might want to ask one another. Um, it also prioritizes the importance of mutual respect and mutual pleasure in addition to that mutual communication. So really wholeheartedly recommend it, especially if you are considering switching forms of birth control or investigating which method to choose. So in the book, Paris says that there are five broad types of birth control methods. They are behavioral methods, barrier methods, intrauterine methods, hormonal methods, and permanent methods. This is just a quick introduction. I'm not going to be complete. Uh, rather, I'm going to give an example or two of each type and briefly note ethical concerns that Paris mentions uh, from a Christian perspective. So first, behavioral methods. These are methods that center around changing sexual behavior without the use of either barriers or medicine. They include practicing withdrawal before ejaculation, uh, sometimes crudely referred to as the pull-out method, you may have heard that in conversation, or observing a woman's fertility patterns as evidenced by temperature and or thickness of cervical fluid, and abstaining from sexual activity during the most fertile point of her cycle in order to prevent pregnancy. The most well-known of these behavioral methods is probably NFP, natural family planning, uh, which is often practiced by members of the Catholic faith who wish to avoid hormonal or barrier methods for religious reasons. NFP is not the same as older methods often associated with Catholicism, like the rhythm method or the calendar method. Those are less reliable uh, than natural family planning. Second, barrier methods. Uh, these are really commonly used. Uh, you've probably heard of most of them. They include condoms meant for both men and women, diaphragms, and uh, an older method, the contraceptive sponge. These methods are affordable. They're easily available. In most cases, they don't require a medical prescription. They do work by preventing conception, however, so may not be the best method for those holding the religious belief that life begins at that point. Uh, but a lot of people use them for uh, convenience, ease of cost, and the fact that you do not need a prescription to obtain them. Third, intrauterine methods. Um, you may have heard them called uh, by the short form of their longer name, IUDs for intrauterine devices. These devices prevent, prevent fertilization and must be inserted into the vagina by a medical professional. While these devices do require more medical attention than do uh, barrier or behavioral methods, they're more effective and also they only have to be replaced um, at, at longer intervals, sometimes as little as once every 10 to 12 years. Paris notes that some Christians view IUDs as abortive fashions because uh, of the association with prevention of uh, implantation, but that in fact the primary methodology involved is prevention of fertilization, um, that prevention of implantation works secondarily. So depending on one's religious belief, uh, that may or may not be acceptable. Uh, Fourth, the most common method, uh, or second most common method, probably next to barrier methods, we've already mentioned, hormonal methods. Um, odds are, if a woman you know talks about being on quote-unquote birth control, she's talking about a hormonal method. There are two types of these, combined hormonal methods, which deliver both estrogen and progestin, or progestin-only methods. Standard contraceptive pill falls under this umbrella, as uh, does the injection and the implant. Um, you usually get injected either in your hip or your arm, and the implant typically uh, goes into the arm. Unlike barrier methods, which prevent fertilization, hormonal methods prevent ovulation. 
Uh, a subcategory of these hormonal methods also includes emergency contraception, which you may have heard referred to as Plan B or the morning after pill. Um, this is a, a real source of, of Christian misinformation that I, I want to correct, um, I want to get out in front of. Uh, the morning after pill is not an abortive fashion. Sometimes it's confused in Christian circles with RU486 or Mufoprostol, which is often used as an abortive fashion. The morning after pill is not the same thing as RU486. The morning after pill or plan B is essentially a double dose of hormonal birth control engineered to be taken within 72 hours of unprotected intercourse. Uh, so if, uh, if your condom breaks or in many times in cases of rape, um, that is when plan B is used. And fifth and finally, uh, permanent methods, as their name suggests, prevent pregnancy permanently. They are surgical methods that do not need to be entered into lightly. Vasectomy for men and for women, uh, two types of permanent methods exist, either an abdominal laparoscopic surgery, um, commonly sometimes referred to as having one's tubes tied, or a complete hysterectomy, which involves the complete removal of the uterus. Uh, these things are typically not uh, used as merely contraceptives, but uh, used for other more complicated medical reasons, and obviously should only be undertaken after consultation with a doctor that you trust, and with an eye to uh, both partners' holistic health. So I know that that was a bit long-winded, uh, but those are the five broad types of birth control methods, and I hope that, that was helpful. super helpful, Victoria, and I'm definitely going to look up the Birth Control for Christians book because it sounds like a great resource. Um, and I just wanted to include that section of the episode just in the uh, as a way of like actively breaking the silence so we have the actual information being put out there in this episode as well. Um, because that's just so important to to have. Um, and it's also important, as you're mentioning, to disambiguate um, uh, contraception from the abort abortive fashion methods um, as well, um, because having it all sort of mixed up together, even though discussion around abortion is also an important topic, but having it all mixed up together has been kind of a big political uh Ha sort of had really, really terrible political results when it comes to global reproductive health and uh, the lives of women around the world. Um, all right, so let's move on then to the reading segment. We looked at two readings for this episode. One is a section from the 2016 United Nations Population Fund State of the World uh, Population Report. And the second is an open letter to religious leaders on family planning. Uh, in the State of the World Population Report, we read Chapter 4, which talks about supporting girls today for the collective well-being of tomorrow. Um, and so I'll summarize that briefly and we can talk about your responses to it. So the United Nations Population Fund, or UNFPA, is one of the organizations that, among other things, works to prevent maternal deaths by providing women with reproductive health care. And I should mention that on April 3rd of last year, the United States actually cut its funding to the UNFPA, which had been uh, $607.5 million for the 2017 fiscal year. So it was like a huge impact uh, dropping that funding. According to the UNFPA, this money from the United States, which is its second largest donor, had been its second largest donor, had enabled 25 million women to receive contraceptives. It averted 7.4 million unintended pregnancies, prevented 3.1 million abortions, and prevented uh, 15,000 maternal deaths. Um, these statistics are from a statement from the UNFPA that I'll link to in the show notes. Um, and following the funding, the UNFPA noted sort of the intersectional way that uh, the benefits it works to provide function, saying, investing in the health and rights of girls and women and empowering them to plan their families and their futures sparks a ripple effect generating not only strong healthy and empowered girls and women but more stable and prosperous families communities and countries 
Uh, so the UNFPA's State of the World Population 2016 report uh, shows some of these benefits in detail, uh, describing how intervening in the lives of 10-year-old girls, specifically as the focus of this report, intervening in the lives of 10-year-old girls today would make a huge difference for the future. In the chapter we read, the report provides a hypothetical timeline laying out two futures for a girl with the imagined name Gayatri, uh, one, of which, one, one future in which she has access to these kinds of resources and education, and one uh, where she does not. So in the first timeline, this 10-year-old girl's family receives financial incentives to keep her in school, and Gayatri joins a community program that teaches her about reproductive health. She goes on to complete high school, finds skilled work, and chooses to marry at 21, and delays pregnancy until she's 23. In the second timeline, in which there are no programs targeting keeping girls in school and providing reproductive health services and education, um, Gayatri leaves school early, is married at 15, has her first child at 16, is unable to find skilled work, and has three children and few prospects at 25. The few easily implemented interventions make all the difference in these, between these two timelines. Of course, this is just a hypothetical timeline, but the report as a whole um, attempts to show that uh, each of the situations that the timeline is based on is really all too real in the lives of many girls and women and that these positive effects really can be created through such programs. The report also tries to show how investing in the lives of girls, uh, partly by providing access to reproductive health care, but also by providing and encouraging multiple kinds of education, um, works towards the United Nations sustain Sustainable Development Goals, a set of 17 goals from 2015, which seek to increase peace and, and poverty. So, for example, like goal five is achieving gender equality, which this kind of work obviously affects. But the ripple effect, uh, like in the differences between the two imaginary timelines, shows how this goes into other goals as well. So helping to work against poverty and, and hunger, which are goal, goals one and two, um, as women are empowered and raise up those around them, or working toward health and education for all, which is um, goals three and four, or reducing inequality within and among countries, which is goal 10, and so on. So as the preface to this 2016 report says, how much progress on these development goals can we expect if the enormous potential of girls remains stifled and squandered? Um, and a reason I thought that this report might be good for us to look at is that it shows, as with this imagined timeline, that there have to be really multiple things going on in order to reduce maternal mortality and empower women and girls. And this isn't just a matter of like showering the world in condoms. Okay, um, The financial incentives program that keeps the imagined girl in school rather than having her parents keep her at home is just as important as the community reproductive health program in this scenario. So so all of these things are linked. Um, and of course, also religion is another aspect of this, which we'll talk about in a minute. But before we go on to that, uh, what were your responses to this chapter or um, to sort of the topic of global reproductive health um, in general? So I can step in first. Um, so when I was reading this, what struck me, I think, is just the immense um, weight of the issue. I think here, you know, being in Connecticut, sometimes I, I don't think about contraceptives as a matter of life and death, but they really are for so many women around the world. And um, that's, I think that was just the main thing was just how much of a life and death matter it really is. Victoria, did you have any um, thoughts? Yes, what stood out to me the most about the chapter were the differences in the two timelines, um, primarily the difference in the kind of marital relationship that Giatri ended up in um, without community involvement and uh, sex education and with community involvement and sex education. Um, the when she has more access to resources, she is able to uh, to find her voice and her individuality before being um, 
before being married, whereas when she doesn't, she's um, given to a family the primary qualification of which is they don't require a dowry of her parents, and this relationship uh, is domineering, um, is... Uh, I can't remember if it's physically abusive. It's certainly sexually abusive um, to the point that she um, doesn't... She brings up using contraception and her husband gets angry um, and she knows he doesn't like it so she doesn't bring it up again. Um, that, that kind of emotional coercion uh, certainly qualifies as abuse in my book. So that was the, the biggest difference I noticed. Um, the, the fact that that lack of resources really changes the shape of her um, personal and emotional life in, in really irrevocable ways. Yeah, um, and the point about coercion and choice and the lack of that for Gayatri and the one timeline, um, it's important to note as well because something we talked about in the seminar was how it can be like us sitting here with all our privilege in Connecticut, like it can be uh, thinking like, oh, well, you could just choose not to have sex and then you won't have any problems. But uh, for most women around the world, like uh, there's something like a statistic in the course that um, seven out of 10 women would report that their first sexual experience was coerced. Like choice is not always a given um, when it comes to... Uh, to, to uh, sexual experience for women. Uh, any other thoughts on this uh, chapter? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we hit the high points. Um, I just wanted to say one other thing I thought I should mention, uh, acknowledge that um, we talked about in the seminar well, how much of us talking about global reproductive health from positions of relative privilege in the United States is a kind of paternalism. Um, but the, and I think that can be a real issue in, you know, the, the, the creation of programs and the decision on what kind of funding is given and that sort of thing. Um, the conclusion we came to in that discussion in the seminar, though, is that uh, it's, it's not so much I don't know how to say it. It's not so much like a position of paternalism as a an issue of real like global importance for everyone around the world. Um, and also that that kind of paternalism comes out more in like saying what I was just mentioning, like assuming, oh, everybody has the privilege of choice. And so we'll withhold funding because everybody should just choose abstinence or something like that. That is that is the position of paternalistic privilege as opposed to um, really working uh, for the empowerment of women around the world. Um, but I thought I should mention that discussion that we had. I don't know if you wanted to add anything else uh, from the seminar on these topics, Heather? Um, I w well, maybe I could share this now. Something I was just thinking about this whole time was Dr. Murchina um, had a really personal tie into this. She was talking about one of her best friends back home and I think who had been forced to drop out of school and marry at age 14 and she had um, a known medical condition that would have made carrying a pregnancy very dangerous and the church refused to allow her to have contraceptives and um, so she had carried one pregnancy to full term it was very dangerous for her she survived um, they still would not let her have contraceptives, and she became pregnant again and then ended up dying as a result of that pregnancy. So that was just something that um, just was really heartbreaking to hear and painful and just very personal during the class. Yeah, and an example of how you were pointing out this is really a, a life and death issue for many women. Um, yeah, so... Let's move on then to the second piece, the open letter to religious leaders on family planning um, from the Religious Institute, which is an organization that brings together different faiths um, to sort of discuss different issues. Um, Heather, would you summarize this letter and then we can sort of talk about the relationship between religion and sort of attitudes towards uh, contraception or uh, family planning methods? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is a letter and it's signed by over a thousand different religious leaders from diverse faith backgrounds. I think it was in 2012 that it came out. Um, and it's basically bringing forth religious, like a religious reasoning um, for calling all women to have equal access to contraceptives and family planning services. And there's a quote that I really like in here that they put in the introduction, which kind of um, frames like why it's important to have like a religious foundation. And it just says, while there are strong public health and human rights arguments for supporting domestic and international family planning programs, and um, we invite you to consider the religious foundations for affirming safe, affordable, accessible, and comprehensive family planning services. And I think this is just really noteworthy because so often we um, hear religious arguments against women having access to family planning and to just see so many religious leaders coming together and saying the opposite is truly amazing. Um, going just a little more in depth, they go through it. They talk about um, sex and sexuality as divinely bestowed gifts. They talk about um, parenthood as something sacred that shouldn't be entered into lightly or with or um, with any kind of coercion. Um, they talk about everyone's right to have moral agency. Um, they talk about how sacred texts, um, although they're, they're silent on modern contraception, do have a lot to say in support of contraception. Um, they talk about religious liberty and a call to action. And I just also wanted to read um, the last sentence, which I think is really cool. It says, we resist any political attempts to restrict or deny access to family planning services. Contraception saves lives, promotes human flourishing, and advances the common good. So this just isn't a message we hear a lot from religious leaders. I think this, this letter is really awesome. Thanks for that summary. Um, and yeah, that, that message was why I thought this letter was something we should discuss because it's really easy for me personally to forget, I think, that really there's a huge amount of religious support um, for contraception and the human flourishing that it promotes. Um, and that's something we talked about in the seminar that it's really mostly like the methods that are under debate rather than sort of the idea that this is a good thing. Um, yet there's still often seems to be this silence or stigma surrounding contraception in churches. So it's important to remember that there really is all this faith-based support for sexual and reproductive health programs from organizations uh, as different as the Catholics for Free Choice Group, um, the Christian Connections for International Health, uh, the United Methodist Church General Board, um, uh, Islamic Relief, Jewish World Services, um, all these different kinds of organizations. And looking at the signatories that you mentioned, this huge list of signatories for this open letter, it just seems to go on and on. Um, and the list at the end as well of the, the religious denominations and movements that have policies that explicitly support contraception is pretty impressive too. Um, so there really is, I think, a lot that we can foundationally agree on from faith and interfaith perspectives that encourages working towards the sexual uh, reproductive health of women around the world. And like the letter emphasizes, this commitment to freedom of conscience um, should allow for information and choice in family planning, even if any specific religious community might be opposed to particular methods um, and principle. Um, what, what was your response, uh, Victoria? Okay, so I'm going to be a bit of a wet blanket for a minute. Um, I, I agree with this statement, certainly politically and, and mostly theologically from my own perspective. I agree that contraception helps with human flourishing. Um, what troubled me about this statement... Um, though I am encouraged by its interfaith perspective, I think because it was signed by so many people of so many different faiths, there's no clear theological citation from any perspective, um, and, and not a lot of clear term definition either. Uh, there are statements like... 
in the creation stories the world over, the divine fashions humans intentionally in relationships and families. Uh, yes, that's true, but it doesn't cite a single one of them. Um, just a, a lot of really broad statements and not a lot of term definition. Uh, it says most faith traditions accept modern methods of contraception and support it as a means of saving lives, improving reproductive and public health, enhancing sexuality, and encouraging intentional parenthood. All of those are good things, but what's a faith tradition? Which faith traditions are you talking about? What are modern methods of contraception, and how are they connected to these faith traditions? I just felt like this was really good and positive, but also um, so broad as to be kind of theologically toothless. I mean, it doesn't even cite a broad kind of imago dei support for the things that it that it mentions. So while I agree with it, I wanted it to have more teeth. Mm, yes, it is definitely very broad, and I think, like you, you point out, with the uh, organizations that it's working with, very intentionally so. Um, and that's one reason I think it might be good for us at the end of the episode here to um, sort of take up the final call to action from this letter, which is uh, giving our own sort of perspective um, on the need for supporting uh, global family planning programs from our own particular faith positions. Um, or I guess we could just talk about sort of contraception in general, as we've shown that it's uh, definitely linked. Um, what is what are what would be your faith perspective with its theological teeth on what we've been discussing, um, Victoria or Heather? If you want to go, I mean, I I guess I think that uh, it would be better to support, um, for example, like the placing children in families. Uh, I certainly think that the Bible does support that asks us to care for widows and orphans, uh, imbues parenthood with responsibility, um, you know, the, the call to, to train children so that they won't uh, depart from their training later in life. All of those things are in the Bible um, and, and can be cited. So I, I would just like, even if I'm, I'm not asking for a wholly Christian perspective from this statement either, I, I would have been fine with uh, citations from uh, from Judaica or from Islam. I just I wanted some sort of theological specificity, even if I got specificity from multiple traditions. Yeah. Um, so the, the the placing of uh, children and families would be um, an important uh, scriptural point for you. Um, and I think from my own like theological perspective uh, is probably vaguer than <laughs> sort of broader and vaguer than you would want. Also, um, I as I I mean I would have I would have to place this in my mind uh, in the framework of sort of God's love for each person. Um, and I, thinking about it, like I see God as this incarnational God who is in solidarity with human suffering and against all injustice, um, this God who's committed to the full flourishing of each life. And as we talked about in episode 22, I don't see this incarnational God as opposed to the flesh or to sex. Um, God doesn't create these silences and taboos that we've forced on each other. Uh, but more importantly than that, God's love for each person and God's creation of each person in God's image, like you're mentioning, Victoria, the Imago Dei and how that's important, um, means for me that we have to honor the human dignity and equality and work against the systems of oppression and death that keep women around the world from the resources that they need for this living and flourishing. So that would be sort of my broad like theological perspective on it um, from my uh, Christian standpoint. And I should say that that's for me a non-denominational standpoint still. I haven't um, settled into a denominational home yet. I don't know if I will. Um, Heather, what about you? Sure. I think my perspective, I, I feel like it's quite similar to yours, Marie. Um, I think also just Jesus as... Um, kind of the ultimate seeker of justice 
and seeking these rights is, is a way of seeking justice. And I think that's ultimately, for me, the Christian like reason behind why why this is such an important topic. Yeah, and I definitely agree, Victoria, that we need to have kind of these specifics um, in terms of the, the advocacy within specific religious communities. Like this letter is not going to change any minds in really specific communities. I wouldn't think. Maybe it would, but um, there, there's a need for that. I, mean, I, I think um, particularly if if you want to correct misinformation um, or what you see as med- medical misinformation from faith communities that um, that are anti-contraception, they are certainly going to have textual um, sources for those kinds of misreadings, um, right? I mm-hmm. mean, you're probably mm-hmm. going to hear about um, about onanism and about Eve's pain and childbirth mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. And if if we don't have knowledge of where those misreadings come from, why they're misreadings, and um, and other biblical citation for other points of view, then uh, then no one's going to listen to us. Yeah, exactly. That's where the, the specificity um, comes in, which uh, possibly some of our suggestions will, our recommended readings will um, point towards resources for. Um, are there any further comments on this open letter before we move on to the passing on section or other comments on what we've discussed so far? I think I, I'm good for now. All right, well, let's move on then to the passing on section. Uh, Victoria, what's your recommendation? I am going to recommend an article I read about a week ago. Uh, It's an NPR interview from their health news blog. Uh, An article by Selena Simmons Duffin, which um, is entitled, Where the Need is Tackling Teen Pregnancy with a Midwife at School. And it's about this particular program at a high school in Washington, D.C. that has installed um, a midwife. She's there three or four days a week, and she works in concert with the school nurse to, uh, it's an an area that deals with uh, high, high rates of teen pregnancy. And she um, is sort of part sexual educator, part... um, midwife part um, counselor advice giver mom uh, she she really installs herself in these students lives and walks them through um, their relationships with their partners the process of pregnancy gives them information about uh, sexual health uh, information about how their bodies are changing and is really just someone to be physically there during the course of their day and give them information uh, about what is, of course, um, a a very um, physically uh, change-filled and emotion-filled experience for anyone, but especially a teenager. And uh, when I was doing the readings for this episode, I really thought that they resonated with this article in terms of community involvement and information working together to uh, to make people's lives better. So that's my recommendation. Oh, sounds great. Um, and Heather, what's your recommendation? I wanted to recommend a documentary. Well, I said that kind of weird. Um, called Sister. And Sister is basically it follows... Um, health workers in Ethiopia, Cambodia, and Haiti. And it, it um, speaks to just the difficult circumstances and high um, maternal and newborn death rates. And it talks a lot about um, lack of access to family planning and um, poverty and um, how women based on their status and communities are not receiving proper medical care. Um, and it's also just really beautiful. Thanks. It sounds like that uh, documentary would really underscore kind of the importance of this topic. Um, And 
I'm going to recommend actually a pretty old blog post from 2014 um, by Rachel Held Evans, um, just because it, I remember it being so striking to me when I first read it. It's on Christian attitudes towards hormonal contraceptives titled Privilege and the Pill. Um, Held Evans in this post points out that economic privilege and male privilege often affect the stances of male leaders, uh, religious or otherwise, who oppose these forms of contraception. Um, and she talks about how problems with misinformation, like we've been talking about, um, for example, that contraception is the same as abortion, um, can cause Christians to oppose contraception without a kind of real firm foundation for the opposition. Um, and I also recommend um, voicing some support uh, if you get the chance um, for the UNFPA and against um, the defunding that's occurred. Um, for example, there's a petition at the uh, Friends of the UNFPA website that I'll link to that um, could be signed. And uh, thank you both for being in this episode. I hope maybe it would be a good idea another time to have an episode that is just devoted to contraception and the Bible and looking at some of those specific references, Victoria. I think that would be a great um, topic to address in the future. Yeah, maybe we can get that on the schedule in the fall if uh, if there's interest. So listeners, if that's something that yeah. you'd be interested in seeing us cover on a deeper level, let us know. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Ellen Peterson is our intern. For Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Heather Bertman, I'm Marie Haas. Tune in in two weeks when we'll have a special interview with Helen LaKelly Hunt. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>